Welcome back to the Courtside with Kurt podcast. I'm along with longtime Standard Times Cops and Courts reporter Kurt Brown. I'm digital editor Brennan Curie. And today uh, we're going to be talking about a story that Kurt has coming out in the Sunday Standard Times. That'll be October 22nd's paper. And uh, it's a long, in-depth story that you've been working on for a while on uh, Donald Eugene Webb. Um, thank you, Brendan. Yes, it's a story I've worked on for about three weeks. Uh, um, it's really a nuts and bolts, uh, behind-the-scenes look at the hunt for Donald uh, Eugene Webb. We all know that his uh, remains, skeletal remains, were found in the backyard of his wife's home on Maplecrest Drive in Dartmouth on uh, on July 13th. Uh, they were positively identified as the longtime fugitive <clears throat> uh, the following day by the state medical examiner's office, and that touched off a within law enforcement circles a, a celebration that uh, this 37-year mystery about where he was was finally being brought to a close. This was the type of case that had been talked about in police circles, right? It was kind of a a hot topic for them, probably. It it never left the radar screen. It it all started back on December 4th, uh, 1980, a very, very small town of Saxonburg, Pennsylvania, which is northeast of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Uh, uh, according to court documents, uh, Webb was uh, casing out a jewelry store, the only jewelry store in Saxonburg. Uh, and he, uh, commi- I think, believe he went through a, mo- a stop sign. A stop he sign. ran a stop sign, yeah, yes. got pulled over. And, and the, uh, By pol- the police chief himself. Well, it's a very small, small town, department. so yeah. I think it's only three, three members in that department. All right. The uh, chief pulled him over, and had, and, and then that, uh, according to the court documents, the uh, there was a federal warrant out for Webb, uh, dating back to a, a burglary in Colony, New York, um, and. Uh, Webb had done time in prison, and he was, according to the FBI, was determined not to go back. And made comments to that. He had. And and that touched off this violent uh, confrontation between uh, Saxonburg police chief uh, Gregory Adams, um, a young, um, recently married, only four years married with two small children, ages two and eight months, uh, where the police chief was shot twice in the chest, beaten uh, severely about the face, and Webb was shot once in the leg. Uh, the uh, chief uh, died on the way to the hospital. Uh, Webb escaped, fled, and um, now back up a little bit that Webb belonged to a gang called the Fall River Gang. Uh, <clears throat> and they were notorious for jewel thieves, robbing jewelry stores and stuff around Cape Cod, Rhode Island, right. even uh, Connecticut. Southern Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania. The police told me that he, their their motto was that they didn't commit crimes in their own backyard, that they went up there. <clears throat> At the time of the murder, according to court documents, um, uh, Webb was staying at a, a motel in Gettysburg, uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, he was casing out this jewelry store. It was called, 
I'm, well, I'm not going to say the name um, because now I'm not sure. Uh, but, the, but it's the only jewelry store in Saxonburg, right. at least at the time. So. That's right. Um, yeah, so uh, you actually, uh, in this reporting, uh, you talked to a ton of people. I'm not going to go through the whole list, but one of the people you talked to was Marianne Jones. Mm-hmm. And she talked a little bit about that night and what uh, she went through that night. So just kind of talk a little bit about uh, what, what she told you about what it was like for her to go through that ordeal. It was uh, terrible. She... Uh, they, uh, her, she is remarried. Um, I, I talked to her either two or three times uh, in the course of the reporting. Um, she was extremely gracious. Um, she, uh, the police chief, wanted a separation between his uh, job and his home life. He had a wife and he had two young children. Uh, ages two and eight months, as I said before. They had only been married four years, but the chief did not have a scanner in his home. So uh, <clears throat> so she uh, was in the dark until she, she got a phone call. She or, was literally in the dark. And and she got a call from the Saxonburg um, borough uh, <clears throat> secretary saying that uh, her husband had been shot and uh, somebody was coming to pick her up. Uh, she was uh, she was in bed with the flu, uh, and she had two young cho- two small children in the home. So she went door n- next door um, and asked one of her neighbors to wash the children. Um, the neighbor had a scanner, as she found as the widow found out later and knew all about it. And so the uh, neighbor came over and watched the children. The um, <clears throat> while she went to uh, while she went to the hospital. Hospital to. She, it's very out, sad. Found out the terrible news. Yeah, she was taken into a room, and um, Pennsylvania State Police told her that her husband had died, and on the way to the hospital, and she managed as best she could. So, uh, you know, being the murder of a police chief, of course, there was uh, quite interest, a lot of interest in the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, uh, Donald uh, Eugene Webb, uh, kind of immediately went on the lam. And uh, yes. basically from that day until they pulled his body up from the ground, mm-hmm. uh, there were, I guess, no, no, were there any confirmed sightings of him even in that whole, you know, 1980 to 2017 um, I I would want to see um, <clears throat> more um, court documents, and I would want to do more reporting. But the uh, both the FBI and the retired FBI, um, and let's back up for a minute. Um, almost all the people that I talked to are uh, were, <clears throat> were um, retired state police. Uh, retired Fall River police and retired FBI agents who uh, who were actively involved in this case. Uh, and you uh, talked to more than a half dozen. Oh, I think least, I probably talked to about 15. And, 15 uh, different law enforcement, mm-hmm. lawyers on both sides, mm-hmm. um, the, the widow. I mean, this is a real in-depth uh, story here that you, was well reported. But get well, back thank to your, you. <laughs> uh, so, so the um, FBI was tailing a, an associate of Webb's down in either Miami or in uh, Dade County. Um, this was, by the best recollection, um, September of, of um, 1981, or about 10 months shy of the first anniversary of the chief's killing. Um, 
so the FBI was to following this uh, associate. He goes into a pawnbroker, and rather than um, waiting outside and following him where he's going to go, they go into the pawnbroker, as it was related to me, and they confront this associate uh, who is also wanted by law enforcement. And they're unaware that either in the, on the street or in the parking lot or somewhere, Webb is in a vehicle. And Webb sees this uh, interaction between FBI agents and uh, his associate, and then he flees. And that's about as close as they ever got to him, it sounded like, at least from uh, what we know. From what I understand, yes. Um, and, and I have this from both mass state police and uh, FBI agents. And now they also went up to Montreal because there were they did, uh, some, because Lillian, I believe, had been going up there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what, what did they find out, I guess, when they went up to Montreal? They, they went up there at, at least twice. Um, <clears throat> the first time, uh, uh, retired Detective Sergeant Paul Carey uh, was asked by a uh, retired uh, special uh, FBI Special Agent George Bates uh, to go up to Montreal and to uh, see what uh, he could uh, see if he could find any trace of Webb. They teamed Carey up with a um, um, a mob guy uh, turned informant. Um, Paul went to told me he went to the Providence FBI office. They gave him eighteen hundred dollars. The Mass State Police gave him a undercover vehicle. And uh, Kerry and this uh, mob guy turned informant went up to the old Blue Bonnets um, racetrack in Montreal. They spent. Webb was known to be a little bit of a gambler. Yes, he was. Uh, He he was a gambler, Uh, and uh, they spent two up two days up there, but they didn't see hide nor hair of uh, of Webb. Um, ended up spending all the money. Um, there's some color in the story, and this is one of the incidents. Uh, Kerry told me that uh, I mean he was flabbergasted. He was waiting in the car, and um, this mob guy came back with a bunch of cigarettes, uh, and at, that he he had a bag full of slugs, according to Kerry. Fake quarters. Fake quarters, and he would throw them into cigarette machines, and that's where they. Nowadays, nobody, there are no cigarette machines. I'm barely old enough to remember <laughs> cigarette machines myself, and uh, I'm about to turn 34 next week. Uh, so, But Kerry said he must have had about $500 in slugs, and he came back with this bevy of uh, stolen smokes. Uh, so, but, so, yeah, Montreal turns up nothing. Um, and then during all this, or, or at least kind of uh, in the same period, time period, uh, as a retired, he, well, he wasn't retired at the time, mm-hmm. but Fall River uh, policeman Preston Paul mm-hmm. had been doing uh, quite the surveillance job on Lillian Webb when she was living, uh, I believe it was 275 Hawthorne Street mm-hmm. here in New Bedford. So he would, uh, he would tailor, he would go through yeah. her trash. and he, he was. I mean, he did all those things. And I got this, too, from... Um, from uh, State Representative Alan Sylvia from uh, Fall River, because Preston loves to talk about his cases. Uh, when I knew him, when he uh, was in the Fall River Police Department, he was never shy about talking about his cases. And so Preston used to tail Lillian. Um, he would follow her for two or three miles, and then he'd break off the tail. He would record the location, the time, the date, 
and then uh, two or three days later, or sometimes the next day, he would he would come back and he would try to pick up the tail again, and then he would follow Lillian. Uh, he said that Lillian was very very uh, aware of the possibility that she was being tailed, and she would she, circle the block. She, would she the wouldn't block take the same the routes to places. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. So she, she seemed like she uh, had some idea what was going on. And Carrie gives us uh, not Carrie. Uh, Preston Paul gives us great description about following her light blue Lincoln Continental with the uh, MPA or the Massachusetts Police Association sticker in the rearview mirror. A uh, little irony there. Well, a little bit. But, I mean, that's a fundraising organization mm-hmm. for the Massachusetts Police Association. Anybody uh, can contribute to that and then get a sticker. Uh, but he would tail her, and uh, one day he tailed her to the Chamnet Diner. And... Uh, um, I don't know what possessed him, but Preston's the type of guy who will just talk to anybody, and he's a just a really likable guy. And he was at the corner, he was at the counter at the, uh, at the Chaminade Diner. Lillian was in a booth, and he said Lillian had a muffin and tea. He made that very clear: tea, not coffee. And uh, then Lillian got up, <clears throat> went to the um, uh, cashier to pay her bill, and. As if uh, I'm sure it's a lot of viewers will remember, that was right next to the door. So uh, Preston followed her out, and she was scratching some lottery tickets. And so Preston wanted to engage her in a conversation and, and perhaps create a bond. So he said, well, she looks like a lucky person. Give me what she's having. So he scratched a few lottery tickets, and they were elbow to elbow with each other, <laughs> uh, scratching lottery tickets. But Alas, uh, neither one of them won. Uh, nothing to bond over. Nothing yeah. to bond over. No, no. And he used to follow her to the uh, to the old uh, Dartmouth um, post office uh, post office on um, on Tucker Road. Um, he said the only routine she really had, though, was the Shawmut Diner. About yeah. 9 a.m., mm-hmm. I don't know how many days a week, she would go down to the Shawmut Diner, have her muffin and tea. Mm-hmm. But other than that, she didn't have a whole lot of uh, yeah. just routines that she'd do all the time. Um, and uh, the person that Preston did this with uh, is retired uh, state police lieutenant uh, Josie Gonzalez. And, and the two of them told me that they must have uh, circled her home, her subdivision in Dartmouth, about 150 times. Mm. Um, and it, it's ironic that um, they are literally the odd couple in the nicest kind of way. Uh, but they met because Preston was serving warrants for Fall River PD, and Josie at the time in the early 80s was serving warrants uh, for the Massachusetts State Police. Josie was stationed at the old state police barracks on, on, state, uh, Road. on state Road in uh, uh, Champion Terrace. So so we go through all these years. They, yep. They're tailing her. They've gone through her trash bags. She's put, what, two trash bags out front. They'd go mm-hmm. through them. Um, and, and no real confirmed sightings of him at all. And uh, so they... Uh, Amazingly, they're still on this case. I mean, amazingly, it's still at the at the top of a pile somewhere, and doesn't become a cold case. Uh, more, you know, great, great job by the uh, many different uh, law enforcement mm-hmm. agencies on that. So uh, it seemed like about 2015, it seemed to pick up again a little mm-hmm. bit more. The uh, I believe was it the FBI went to um, Marianne Jones and asked for photos, right, mm-hmm. of her of her kids. I believe it was 2016. 16. Okay, I'm in the spring. 
I talked, the FBI was made the last case agent uh, who, by his own estimation, is probably the 10th case agent to work this. Um, and that's Tommy McDonald? Tommy no. McDonald, who works out of the uh, Portland, Maine field office. Uh, he told me that he was assigned a case in uh, March or April uh, in um, 2016. And um, they wanted to, and this was a multifaceted uh, uh, investigation, a cold case investigation. Uh, McDonald told me there are times when it is beneficial to investigators to have the family in play. So they went to the family and they requested uh, photos of family members, uh, the grandchildren, and the plan was to prey upon uh, Lillian's sympathies, to appeal to her empathy. Well, that didn't work. Uh, According to uh, Marianne Jones, the chief's widow, that failed miserably. And then they came back in um, March or April of this year and they wanted to do it again. Just make another run at it. Just make another run at it. Uh, The um, chief's oldest son, who was two at the time, he's now uh, 39, he balked at the idea, and according to Marianne Jones, his mother, and said, no, we're not going to do that. Um, We got our hopes up. But he had another good idea. He had a better idea, as it turned out. They, he decided, and he brought it up to the family, according to the, to the widow, and the plan was to file a civil suit against um, Lillian's family. Um, the FBI um, left, came back, and they told Lillian that they had found a hidden room uh, in the um, lower level of... Um, Lillian's uh, home. Um, it was small enough for one person. It locked on the inside. Uh, it was the latch was too high for uh, Lillian to um, <clears throat> to, to close it. Yeah, to reach. And Tom McDonald told me that the only purpose of it was to for, to hide somebody or to conceal somebody. Uh, they gave this information to to the widow and her family, and she gave it to her private attorney, and he was he was very excited about it. He thought it was new information, and they included it in their lawsuit. And now is this uh, – now she had the two homes. She had the one on 275 Correct. Hawthorne Street in New Bedford and then uh, the one at 28 Maplecrest Drive in Dartmouth, which mm-hmm. is kind of near the Dartmouth Middle School, Quinn Elementary. That is correct. In that it's general area, kind of between Allen and Hawthorne. Right. It's, 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 a, it's a very nice subdivision. It slopes down um, and uh, from Slocum Road. Now, were there hidden rooms in both homes? I've, had, I've read there's conflicting information about that. In some court documents, it says that there is a hidden room on Hawthorne Street. When I asked the FBI about that, they said that's still under investigation. Okay. But now one of them, the previous owners of the home, have come out and said that there was not a secret room when they sold it. That was the Dartmouth home? Uh, um, you, you know, I, I... I believe that was in one of the previous stories, if perhaps, I remember. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, anyway, so there's a secret room, at least one secret room, if not two secret rooms. Right. One of them is also a cane found in that is correct. The yeah. room because they had they had also later gotten another search warrant mm-hmm. uh, related to some illegal gambling machines, mm-hmm. right? And so that was a Maura Healy and uh, that uh, that is correct. And Maura Healy's uh, office have said that um, that is the uh, reason this case was broken. Uh, the private attorney uh, for the um, uh, Harris family will tell you that the case was broken because of their lawsuit. In any event, the remains were found in the backyard. Uh, that th- this multi-prong action uh, led. So there's in- the lawsuit. There's the search warrant. There's the revelations of the the secret room. And at this point, it appears Lillian is now finally willing to mm-hmm. take a deal. Give up the location uh, in uh, exchange for immunity. The well, the FBI. Let's get back to the hidden room for a minute. The the FBI is very careful about what they say, and they made the comment to me that the, the hidden the discovery of the hidden room changed the complexion of the case. So uh, they worked out a multi-pronged uh, immunity uh, deal with Lillian and her attorney, John F. Cicilline, uh in Providence. Um, and the deal included uh, that Lillian would not be prosecuted for harboring a fugitive by Pennsylvania, would not be prosecuted for harboring a fugitive by Massachusetts, and the intent, and it, the lawsuit was never filed. They just filed an intent to file a lawsuit. The lawsuit would not be filed in Pennsylvania against uh, against her. So basically, the whole thing would go away if the she. Whole thing would go away if she gave up. Uh, now, at that the, point, did they know he? They believed he wasn't alive, but they weren't sure. That is correct. Yeah, but they didn't know where he was, mm-hmm. and uh, so they on that day they went to see Lillian. And um, both uh, John Cicilline and uh, Tommy McDonald from the FBI, Cicilline again being Lillian's attorney, said that her state of mind was that she wanted to be done with it. Um, and so the FBI gave me this great, great quote that that Lillian led investigators out uh, to the backyard um, near a shed between the shed and the tree line. She dug her heels in the ground and she drew a box similar to a batter's box. As it, much like if like, you're a little kid out there playing wiffle ball and you draw the batter's box. That's exactly it. That was exactly the, the quote that the FBI uh, gave, gave me. Um, investigators dug for uh, somewhere around four to six hours um, the skeletal remains were found um, four to, uh, about four feet down. Uh, they found the remains. Uh, they also found a small caliber revolver that uh, longtime police uh, um, law enforcement officials um, said that um, Webb is known to carry. Uh, so they found both those items. Um, and by the next day, they had identified the body as, as his. And 
Um, it was, and uh, she now they believe that she he had died in about 1999. Although there's a little bit of question about that. No, uh, Lillian has told investigators that he died in uh, toward the end of 1999. He had uh, suffered two strokes. Uh, um, after the first stroke, he told his wife to um, begin um, digging his grave, and uh, she dug a little at a time, and um, uh, and then. W- but what happened from 1981, uh, right after the uh, the murder of the uh, police chief Gregory Harris, and when his body was found in the backyard in 19... Uh, no, I'm sorry. When he died in 1999 remains a mystery. Yes, although uh, I believe that he was treated at Toby Hospital... That is correct. ...after he was shot in the leg. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was there under a fake name. Un- under <laughs> under the name of Lillian's first husband. First husband, uh, according which to he had time. used at other times as yes, well. It was had. kind of a, yeah. a known pseudonym for him, so... So uh, now uh, you you talk to the widow, uh, you know, there's, uh, at least for law enforcement, there's some level of closure here. But for her, it didn't seem like there was quite the same level of closure. She she told me that it's very sad. Um, She says that there is no closure for her uh, or for her two sons. She says closure would have meant that uh, Webb had been captured. Webb had stood trial, and he had been convicted and sent away for her husband's murder. In her mind, that was the, that's the definition of, of closure. Uh, she had some poignant words about Lillian Webb as well. She did. She, uh, she was very, very upset the first time in 2016 when, um, after getting their hopes up and collecting all these photos, that it all went for naught. Uh, she made the comment to me that Lillian doesn't have an empathetic bone in her body, that she does not respond to empathy. She responds to threats, the threats being the lawsuit. And that's what finally put her back against the wall and that's true. maybe changed her mind. Now, in fairness now, uh, her attorney, John Cicilline, um, I, I went to the Maplecrest Drive home and I knocked on the door, and I rang the bell, and Lillian came to the door. And I said, is this the home of Lillian Webb? She said, yes. I said, are you Lillian Webb? And she said, yes. And then I introduced myself and asked if she would speak to me, and she said no. I gave her my business card. But after numerous attempts to get a hold of John Cicilline, he finally called me back, and I told him what the um, uh, Mrs. Jones told me, that she doesn't have an empathetic bone in her body. His response was, that is not the Lillian I know, that uh, she did this out of a deep love and affection for her husband. I went back and said, by it, you mean harboring her husband? And he said, yes. and then the final comment he made to me was, she didn't mean to harm anybody. So, well, whether she meant to or not, there's a correct. family in Pennsylvania that it's certainly still, would beg to differ. Now, the uh, Mrs. Uh, Jones told me that on the anniversary of her for, of her husband's death, which is 
coming up in uh, less than two months, that she would always wonder uh, where Harris was. She uh, where would, Webb was. Where, I'm sorry, yeah. yes. Where, thank you. Where Webb was, what he was doing. She says that is the only consolation of this to her. Is that now she won't uh, wonder where he is and what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And this also brought to a close, uh, there was only two unsolved murders of police chiefs in the United States, and this brought one of them uh, to, to closure. I mean, it's a closed case now. Right, and, uh, and there's, uh, there's only one fugitive, and that was Webb, uh, who was wanted for the slaying of a police chief. That, Tom McDonald, the FBI agent, told me that to underscore the importance to, to law enforcement. And so, yeah, like you were saying, this was one that they've been talking about and discussing and kept uh, doggedly investigating for years and at least uh, finally got to uh, at least some level of knowledge here that mm-hmm. they didn't have before. Yes. So, uh, yes. So what, quite, quite the 37-year uh, case here. And uh, it, it, get, if you get a chance, please read this story because uh, Kurt did a great job kind of going through every level of it and, uh, and as even more detail than we've even talked about here. And uh, so, yeah, give it a read. And, uh, you know, we'll uh, certainly, if there's anything in the future comes up with anything, we'll, you, Kurt will stay on it. Got one more thing to, to add here? Yeah. Um, I try to give readers a full plate. And, and this is a yarn. This is a tale. This is a story that the average person does not see. These are the stories that co- uh, that cops discuss um, uh, on their deck, in their kitchen, at bar rooms, where they're having beer and they're relaxing and they're de-stressing. They talk about their cases, and this is how they. These are the details that come out. This was one of the ones that had gotten away, and now uh, in the end didn't get away. Yes. So, all right. Well, thanks as always to listen to the Courtside with Kurt podcast, the Facebook live series. And uh, you can find this story on com and in Sunday Standard Times. Thank you, Brendan.